My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. And most of you are online. Some of you are in the room, our production and worship team. And last week, we actually left the book of Exodus for the fall. And we're doing a series on the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. And what I want to do is <clears throat> define together what are the fruit of the Spirit. So Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 is a list of virtues. And this list of virtues, it describes internal realities that the Holy Spirit is developing in you if you have professed faith in Jesus. Now, here's the list of virtues. Galatians 5.22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All right, there are two aspects of the fruit of the Spirit that I need all of us to be on the same page with, and here's the first one. We, we dealt with this last week. If you've not gone back and listened to last week's message, I want to encourage you to do that because it's going to set the framework for this entire series, and here's what I need you to know. The fruit of the Spirit, it's both a way of doing as well as a way of being. Here's what I mean by this. Um, sometimes the fruit of the Spirit is a way of doing, which means this. You don't want to do it, but you have to choose to do it. So for example, there are going to be some people that you do not want to have patience with. Can I get an amen? And there is nothing in your heart that wants to be patient. This is not yet an internal reality created by the Spirit of God inside of you. And so here's what we do. We use our will. If you've trusted in Christ, you have self-control. You have a, a will that is free to sin or to not sin. And so we use this thing called the will, and we choose to be patient with the person that is driving us absolutely insane. And that's what it means that the fruit of the Spirit, it's not simply a way of being, but sometimes and honestly, for many of us, more times than not, it is a way of doing. The second category is a way of being. And this is where after you have practiced these things time and time again, you begin to grow the muscle of the fruit of the Spirit. And it goes from being a decision and it becomes an impulse. And this is the place eventually that you want to grow to. Um, I find in my own personal life, there are seasons where certain fruit go from decisions to impulses and then back to decisions again, right? So this is a battle worth fighting for the rest of your life. And I hope today we're going to see a little bit more why. Now, the second thing I need you to know about the fruit of the Spirit is that they are primarily concerned with your relationships, they are primarily concerned with your relationships. One of the fatal flaws that we have is that we obsess about our personal, individual experience with each one of the fruit, but the fruit are not primarily about what's happening simply with me, myself, and I, and God. They are actually relational in nature, and the concern for the Apostle Paul as he puts this list together is that they are about how we relate to one another. For example, it is not enough for you to say that you have love in your heart for everybody, but then judge and despise others who are not like you. It's not enough to experience the joy of the Lord, but then to create relational atmospheres of stress. It's not enough to feel inner peace, but then leave a trail of broken relationships. 
It's not enough to say that you are a patient person, but then project irritability and a demanding spirit onto those in your life. Uh, I want you to hear me again. The fruit of the spirit, it's not simply about what you're experiencing internally inside of you. It is about your relationships with other people. Experiencing something personally, particularly the fruit of the spirit, is about 10% of the journey. It is very easy to feel peace compared to making peace with very challenging people. It is one thing to have this thing happen inside of you. It is another thing for your relationships to begin to experience the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, let's talk about maturity just for a moment. Maturity is not measured by what you feel and what you know, but it's measured by what you do, especially with those who are in close relational proximity. What good is knowledge if it is not dynamically affecting and impacting your personal relationships? What good is internal peace or love or joy or patience or whatever if you're only experiencing it in here, but everyone else's experience with you is volatility? Which is why we say most evangelicals numb themselves from having to deal with the weight of the fruit of the Spirit by only or simply focusing on what I am emotionally feeling when what God wants you to do is take the rest of the 90% of the journey and apply these things measurably to the relationships in your life. So today we unpack the first fruit, and I think this may be the hardest fruit to teach on, and the fruit is love. The New Testament, if you've been around the Bible for a while, you know it's, been, it's written in Greek, first century Koine Greek, and, and the language has multiple different words for love. Here, the word for love is agape. Uh, agape, at its core, is sacrificial, serviced, others-focused love. Now, I want to tell you why this message is probably going to be the hardest for me to teach. Two reasons. Number one, because if you've been around the Bible, you've probably heard 50 sermons on agape. So right now, what you want to do is check out. That is a defense mechanism, by the way, um, that your flesh is putting up so that you are not required to face the reality of agape currently in your life. So overcome that. That's what I ask of you to do. Recognize that um, numbness is actually one of the greatest dangers to growing spiritually. The spirit is not done. I don't care who you are, how long you've walked with Jesus. He is not done forming agape love inside of you. The second reason it's hard to teach is because easily this is the most challenging fruit to implement. It's also the most powerful fruit. It's a very volatile fruit. And I think we're going to see that as this goes on. So power, coercion, strength. This might be how many of you lead in your homes or with your businesses. Um, The best they can do is bend the will of a man. Uh, You can force someone to behave in a certain way, but power and coercion and strength, they will never transform the heart of another person. In fact, what what we're going to see is that agape love really played out, fleshed out, is one of the most powerful transformational tools that you have in your tool belt. That if you want to see someone else be transformed, not just modify their behavior to acquiesce to whatever preference you want them to live by in the moment. If you want another person in your relational proximity to experience internal transformation, the best approach, the best luck that you're going to have with this is agape love toward that person and nothing short of it. 
that this is a tool that when utilized correctly has the highest probability of creating real heart transformation in another person. Of all the virtues, love is the most noble, but agape love is the highest of all loves. It is the holiest of all loves. It is the most transformational of all loves. It is the most compelling of all loves, but it is also the hardest of all loves. And it's the hardest because for every one of us, it requires death. It requires death to our impulse of self-preservation. It requires death to our impulse of indulgence. It requires death to our impulse of judgmentalism. Like the human heart has all of these impulses that are against the way of agape, which is why the changes that we want to see in the people in our relational proximity are not happening the way we want them to. We're using the way of the world, the way of power, the way of emotion, the way of coercion, the way of strength. But those will never transform the inner person. In fact, the people who who have seen the most amount of transformation in their relationships have figured out that this is the method Jesus used, has called us to use, and it is the, the best staying power of any mechanism of change that we can implement. To be like God is to love with agape. That's why it is the hardest. It is why it is the most challenging. To love like God, to have this holiest of loves, is to figure out what this looks like. And I want to be honest with you, without the Spirit, it is impossible, it is utterly impossible to sustain any level of heart change, let alone behavior modification, over the long haul. Uh, The best you're going to get without the Spirit is going to be temporary behavior modification that doesn't last and doesn't really penetrate the heart. And if you are a believer with the Spirit, the best you're going to get is going to be temporary behavior modification unless you're walking with the Spirit, which is why this series is just so important for us right now because here's what I know. Many of you want to see not just yourselves but the people in your lives be transformed by the power of God. And it is not happening through your anger, through your manipulation, through your power, and through your coercion. There is something about agape rightly understood that has the greatest power to transform not just you, but the people in your lives. It is a culture changer when it is implemented, especially implemented from the heart. All right, so rather than just tell you what it is, I want to show you, um, open up your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 23. We're going to be in verse 29, and we're going to spend the rest of our time in this passage. Uh, We're going to look at a case study of agape from the life of Jesus himself. Uh, In this text, Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's compliant. He is silent. Uh, rarely has he opened his mouth for the hours that he has been hanging there, kept his mouth shut almost all day long. And we know this. We know that Jesus' plan was to die. Jesus is exactly where Jesus was supposed to be, hanging on a cross, bearing on his body and his soul and emotions the full weight of the wrath of God for the sins of the world. Like this is a cosmic, not just physical moment in space-time and history, but it is the most dynamic spiritual moment to date in space-time and history. Angels and demons are watching. Some have probably an idea of what's going on. They're trying to make sense of all the prophecies. Some are confused. Why is Jesus the sovereign, the commander of the armies of God, the host of heaven, the creator of the universe? Why is he just sitting there letting his creation beat him? And they're expecting some of them. I'm guessing, is he going to call down angels? Is this going to be the time where he shows himself to be the almighty, the powerful uh, king of the universe? And look what happens in Luke chapter 23, verse 39. 
One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Uh, Railing, reviling are the words used, a spirit of condescension, derogatory nature filled with anger and the desire to punish Jesus with their words. But here's the deal. Jesus, can he not command a legion of angels, be freed right away, publicly vindicate himself as the son of God? Right? He could do all of that, and he doesn't. He just sits there, stands there, hung there. And I I contend that actually doing nothing in this moment takes far greater self-discipline than calling legions of angels. Uh, The book of 1 Peter, you don't have to turn there, but I want to read just one verse to you. It summarizes this moment perfectly. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 40. The other thief chimes in, and there's a surprise because his heart is unexpectedly tender to Jesus. Verse 40 says, but the other thief rebuked him, the other thief, saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? Bro, you're going to die in minutes and you're railing and reviling somebody? Whatever's after this, you're going to stand in judgment and this is how you want to go out? Are you kidding me? He goes on in verse 41. And he says, and we, the two thieves, we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And then the thief's gaze in verse 42 shifts to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I mean, this statement alone is an incredible profession. Let me just share with you a few things that are bound up here. Jesus, I believe your kingdom is one where people like me are welcomed. Jesus, I believe your kingdom is one of mercy and forgiveness. Jesus, I believe that you are a king from a kingdom that is greater than Rome, one that transcends even death and life. I mean, this thief is making actually a very weighty and loaded proclamation. And here's the question. Where did this thief get these crazy ideas from? Now, many of you have heard the story, and there's actually more to this story than meets the eye. And the book of Matthew actually tells us something really important about this thief. The book of Matthew tells us that when the thief was hung on the cross, he did not start off with a tender heart toward Jesus. He, in fact, he started off with the exact same heart that the other thief had. Listen to what Matthew chapter 27, verse 44 says. And the robbers, how many people were on the cross with Jesus? Two others, one to his right, one to his left, no other. And the robbers, plural, who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And just as the people mocked Jesus, thoughtly reiterating all of the accusations and one-liners of the political and religious elites, 
They just repeat them. As this thief is hung up there, he is reviling and slandering and mocking Jesus, just like the other one. Now, here's my question. What happened on that cross where Jesus is largely silent? I mean, Jesus is not preaching to these thieves. He's not saying a word largely to them at all. So what happened on the cross that moved this thief from hard-hearted reviling to a tender heart where he placed his faith in Jesus Christ? Village Church, I want to just say this again before I tell you the answer. Power, strength, and coercion will not move or change the heart of another person. You can bend their will, but those mechanisms and tools will never, ever change the heart. So this reviling thief witnessed firsthand Jesus's agape love. Let me show you what this man saw. We're going to go back a couple verses to Luke chapter 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals. Now, these criminals are going to take center stage with Jesus in the text. They were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And look what happens in verse 34. The simple moment. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Okay, forgive who and for what? I'm going to share with you a, a parallel text from the book of Mark. Forgive, number one, the Roman battalion. Here's what Mark 15, verse 17 says. The Roman battalion, they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. Then they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. You can see the mockery that they're making of him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Who else is he forgiven? And what are they doing? We have those who just walked by. This is the crowds. Verse 29 says, those who passed by, they derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. This level of condescension and vindication in their voice. He says, they say, save yourself and come down from the cross. Here's one of the spiritual leaders of Israel. The ones who are supposed to protect and guard and teach and implement the word of God. It says this in verse 29. Verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe him. And it seems that these religious leaders created the one-liners that the masses, the the Jews, repeated. They started off the one-liners, and everybody just starts taking them and repeating them mindlessly and thoughtlessly about Jesus. And then there's the criminals to his right and his left. It says this, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And here Jesus is. He is literally being canceled by pop culture. By the leaders of the Jewish culture, the the leaders of the Roman culture, he is being erased. He is being murdered. He is being silenced. Whatever he's done has not been, we'll just say, compatible with whatever ethos they're trying to create. The lemmings are following en masse, repeating, regurgitating the one-liners as they hear them. As he's being literally canceled in front of their eyes, this about-to-be-converted thief is expecting Jesus to do back to them what they have been doing to him. 
And rather than just being passive or neutral, Jesus did one of the most unexpected things. He goes before the Lord and he prays for each and every one of the people, reviling, mocking, beating, abusing, slandering, you name it. Is agape love in your heart? I don't know. This has never happened to me. I I don't know that I have the agape love of Jesus yet fully formed in my heart. In fact, if my wife and my kids were in the room, they'd look at you and they would say, Michael, you have a long way to go, which is why the danger of you hearing a sermon on agape and making it an intellectual exercise or one that you dismiss is one of the most dangerous things you can do. Jesus has called us to love one another, to serve, to die, to give, to invest, to build into, to forgive. This, this is counter the flesh in every way. The deeds of the flesh use and abuse. Agape love gives and serves. And somehow this simple act of praying transformed this man, this thief next to Jesus. Now, here's the deal. If you love with faithful agape love in the way Jesus did, is everyone going to have their heart transformed? Please tell me no. The answer is no. But your best shot at seeing transformation in others will not come through power, coercion, or strength. It will come in you figuring out how to love with agape love. Now, this looks different when you're a parent or when you're a teacher or when you're a boss, when you're an authority or when you're in submission to authority. The nuances of this play itself out, and this is where the believer needs to get good practical wisdom from people who have walked this walk and gone before them and to figure out what does it mean to not revile when my seven-year-old or my 14-year-old reviles me to my face, right? What does agape love look like there? Now, this, this sermon is going to be six hours if we're going to start tapping into all the different ways that you are going to be tested in agape love when you have also responsibilities to lead and to care and to discipline and to disciple. But I want to give you a few things I want to focus on, um, especially your relationships with people who are equals to you. Three so what's for you. Number one, agape love knows when not to speak. You'll notice this. Did Jesus correct the foolish, thieving revilers? He had no words for them. Why? Because agape love, one that really is about the other person, when I have a posture of my heart is for your transformation, I also know that there are things that I can do that can push you away even further. So when you have an angry, reviling fool, is correcting them going to be productive? No. In fact, Jesus knows that there are some conversations you just don't have because they are not okay, because the people are not in a good place to hear it. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is to shut your mouth and to sacrificially serve someone. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12, here's what Paul says. When reviled... We bless. Doesn't that feel backwards? Because it is. The way of the spirit is completely backwards. If you want the reviler to have even a shot at transformation, it's not enough to say the words most of the time. You have to figure out how not to revile in return. Nay, bless in return. That there is power 
in this method. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, what does the persecutor want you to do? Give up, give in, deny Jesus, etc. He says, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We don't slander back. And then somebody might say, but what does that make me? It makes me weak. It makes me pathetic. And, and here's the Apostle Paul, by the way, an incredibly powerful and influential man. Here's what he says. We, Christians, who are being slandered, persecuted, whatever it is, we have become and are still the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That's how people may see you. But in these heated environments where you might be slandered or reviled, the worst thing that you can do is slander or revile in return. In fact, the impulse of the heart is something we need to resist and we need to figure out what does it mean when I'm slandered, when I'm reviled, to not ruin the person in response, but to figure out how to measurably, sacrificially, agape love that person because if I want their transformation, it's not gonna happen by retaliation. Unfortunately, retaliation is in our blood, but it's counterproductive. So from what we've seen so far, is agape love your impulse? When slandered, what is your impulse? When reviled, what is your impulse? When misrepresented, what is your impulse? When harmed, what is your impulse? Now, there is no condemnation. Man, the blood of Christ covers all of our weaknesses. But to recognize that your impulse isn't there yet means we need now to prepare ourselves with a way of doing. Uh, we need to prepare ourselves to actually live in a way that is contrary to the impulse of our heart. Because the impulse of our heart is towards the flesh. And so for many of us, we need to understand that, listen, reviling and slandering, misrepresentation, etc., more and more and more, I don't care what side of the religious spectrum you're on, the political spectrum you're on, in the next few months, as we watch the landscape of things change, sides get taken in, in the church, outside of the church, and somehow the mature believer rises above these things. When reviled, we do not revile in return. When slandered, we do not slander in, in return. We have a far greater tool in our tool belt, and that is agape love given to us by the Holy Spirit who is in us. Uh, so what, number two? Agape love plays the long game. So passivity is, a, is I think, a temptation for many of us when we are hurt by others. Uh, passivity is the short game. It runs away and crosses its fingers in hopes that it's never going to come up again. But in the face of sin, when you're passive, sin just grows. Um, anger also plays the short game. Again, anger is a tool that we use to control, to coerce behavior, to mitigate bad behavior. And sometimes it actually works for a season. But what we've learned from the book of James and from personal experience is that the anger of man does not have the ability to produce the righteousness that God wants and requires. That my expression of anger will not actually produce transformation in the inner person, which is why it is one of the most common used but useless tools that we have in our tool belt. Anger accomplishes simply behavior modification and nothing more. Have you ever been yelled at and been like, my heart has changed? No, it doesn't work like that. We know that. And yet we utilize that as a tool. Agape love plays the long game. It is the slow, arduous pathway that gives us the greatest chance of seeing others transformed. That if you want real transformation, it is going to require agape love. It's never passive. It's never angry. 
It is something fundamentally different. It looks out for the best interest of the other person. Now, again, some of you rightly so are asking this question. What does agape love look like in this circumstance? You fill in the blank. I want to encourage you, go back to your community groups. If you're in a small group or men's group or women's group, and I want to challenge you, bring your circumstances to the table because depending on the power dynamics in your relationship, whether you're in authority, whether you're in submission, whether you're a peer, whether you're in a work environment, these principles played themselves out different. But let it not be said of me that I was passive and ran from the issue. Let it not be said of me that I used power and strength and coercion to bypass the hard issue. Let it be said that I look out for the person's best interest and I do this with a heart and a posture that is to love them and to serve them. So at number three, agape love requires four things. And each of these need to be lined up for this reality to grow inside of you. And here's the first one. Agape love requires the Holy Spirit. It is the fruit of the Spirit And the Holy Spirit is only ever given to those who place their faith in Jesus. Without the Holy Spirit, you can do some behavior modification, agape, but it actually won't really last and it will lack the power to transform you and other people. But if you are going to live out agape love, you must place your faith in Jesus. And I want to invite you in this moment because for some of you, passivity and anger and power and coercion and these worldly tools have been everything you've ever known. And you know that you need spiritual help because these realities do not yet exist inside of you, even to a little degree. And I want to invite you to place your faith in Jesus Christ, to confess your sin to him and ask him to save you. Uh, Do you believe that you're a sinner who's fallen short of God's glory? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that God raised him from the dead with a a declaration that this truly is the son of God? Do you believe this? I have just incredible news for you that salvation is not for good people, but forgiven people. And Jesus is offering anybody forgiveness who would place their faith in him. Number one, you need the Holy Spirit. Number two, if you are a believer in Jesus, you have to keep step with the Spirit. Meaning the spirit has a way of living, which means that even as your heart does not want to do the fruit of the spirit, you're going to have to make regular, daily, sometimes hourly or minute by minute decisions to keep in the step of the spirit, which is the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self. You, you get the point. That there is a daily decision that as you make the decisions to keep in step with the Spirit, even though your heart doesn't want to, that there's something that happens inside of you for internal transformation. Number three, ongoing agape requires, I need you to hear this, the absolute conviction that every human being you interface with, whether it is the person giving you the middle finger as you drive down the road, or it is your evil boss, or it is your neighbor who does terrible things to you, It doesn't matter who it is. Agape love will not exist in you unless you believe they are valuable, made in the image of God. There has to be something in you that rises above the emotion of the moment and agrees with God's word that despite the crazy happening in this person's life right now, they are of utmost value. We do not love people with agape love that we see as subhuman or at least sub-us. There has to be this base value and assumption. They are made in the image of God, which by the way, why is it easier for you to love your kids with agape, to sacrifice, to look out for their best interest? Because you inherently believe they have value. Why is it hard for the person who gives you the middle finger driving on the road when it was their fault in the first place to love them with any level of love in your heart? Because you don't value them. 
what you see is an inconvenience in that moment, which they are. But somehow agape love is going to have to rise above some of the stuff and see every human as inherently valuable, whether or not they treat me well or not. I mean, Jesus is on the cross, and what is his perspective of the guards, of the thieves reviling him, of the chief priests who are misrepresenting and slandering him? His posture is somehow, God, these people need forgiveness. They matter to you. They matter to me. And any one of them who place their faith in me, what I am doing for them in this moment can be applied to, to them. Like that is a very different posture, right? Than what we feel when we're being given the middle finger while we're driving. You know what I'm saying? Which just tells us like there's something in us that needs to dehumanize others when they inconvenience our life and it gives us this internal justification to not love them with agape love. Even as I say this out loud, by the way, I am so convicted on so many levels. Anyone else feel that way? All right, good. Here's the fourth thing you need. You need the strength of the spirit to not let your emotion or your pain drive your behavior. I think to understand the primary things that will cause you to give up agape, it is the emotion of the moment and past pain. That these are, these are somehow two experiences that we have that allow us to justify treating people as subhuman, sub-us, to dehumanize them. Because what becomes most important in the moments of pain and emotion is ourselves. Agape love says this. I'm going to set aside my rights and I'm going to serve you. I'm going to value you. And I'm going to seek your personal transformation over my vindication. And that, my friends, requires the Holy Spirit. Uh, We are entering, as I've said before, one of the craziest seasons America has ever seen. And the division... In the church and outside of the church, it's only going to mount. And my prayer for Village Church is so far, I have been blown away with all sincerity by how different we are as a church on so many levels. And the unity that has been found here has been unbelievable and precious, but it is always fragile. It is something that we have to intentionally fight for. We have to guard. We have to protect Because our flesh is in every single one of us. And there is going to be a strong impulse, whether it is masks, politics, theology, educational choices, the list goes on and on. For us to now treat others as subhuman as if they will change because we treat them poorly. I would actually contend that the brightest light that we're going to shine in this is to be unified together. And when reviled, we bless. When slandered, we entreat. We go before the Lord and we say, God, you are my defender. There has to be something different in this place amongst our people as we walk into this season. And so here's my challenge to you. Wherever you are, whatever crazy person you're encountering, I want you to understand that they are as important to God as you are to God. And I want you to figure out in that moment, what does it mean to modify my behavior, to love them well, and then ask God to change my heart in this moment so that I don't treat them as someone subhuman. The power is in the long game of agape. And every once in a while when you live agape, you're going to get to see what Jesus saw, which is somebody transformed right before your eyes, their heart broken because agape is one of the most compelling experiences that somebody can watch. So Village Church, I want to take a moment and pray for each one of us because we need so much help 
in this area. Let's pray together. Father, I come before you needy people wanting to be in step with your spirit, wanting to play the long game, wanting to see frustrating and from our definition, ignorant people become more like us, if we're being honest. But God, we need the mind, the heart, and the life of Jesus. And what we want more than anything is their transformation. God, we are a guilty people of using power, coercion, and strength to try to change the hearts of other people. We confess to you that we have failed and it has not worked over and over and over again. Lord, we confess that we have engaged fools. We confess that we have called people names when we felt reviled. Largely, we just confess that our hearts have such a long way to go. So we lay before you again our mind, our heart, and our behavior. And God, we ask that you would continue to transform us. And Lord, we know we will never arrive at this, but God, we want to be on a continual pursuit of growth and transformation in each one of these areas. God, as Ville Church enters this season, is, is, I can see the, the tension growing in our world, in our community, in our nation. Would you protect us from the evil one, from the lies of this world, but also from ourselves? Would you somehow give us the ability to love and to see the inherent dignity in every person that we encounter so that we might love them well. God, we, we are thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ that has covered all of our deficiencies in this, which is many for every one of us. So thank you. And in this last moments, we come before you and we sing. Uh, this song is a a reflection on what you have done. It's a prayer of gratitude. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. We want to bring glory and honor to you. And so, God, as we sing this last song, this is our declaration of thank you, thankfulness for what you have done in us, what you have yet to do in us, and for covering all of our sin because we have fallen short of your standard time and time again. So, God, thank you. We are filled with gratitude that for all of our past, present, and future failures. The blood of Christ covers those who have placed their faith in Jesus. We love you, and now it's our joy to worship you again in Jesus' name. Amen.